Well, Pat has a little vacation. I get the opportunity as associate pastor to step in and to open God's Word with you. Such a joy. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, we'll begin with verses 49 through 56. And as you do that, just a word of encouragement to our fathers. It is a special day for us here in our country to uh, remember God's grace and blessing upon our dads. What an opportunity that we have as men. Uh, Look at Psalm 127, and the psalmist, ultimately the Spirit of God through the psalmist, says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Such a great blessing for us as, as fathers. Uh, at the same time, what an encouragement, exhortation to us of the responsibility we have as Christian men to be pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ and raising our children and Him, uh, teaching them, instructing. So be praying uh, for the fathers even here. And those of you who are single, uh, what an opportunity is the body. I love to say this because some of us go, well, I'm not a father. <laughs> but we are part of the body of Christ. Each of us members together as one body. So I love to say, my children are your children. Your children, our children, we share together, we minister together, we labor, we all point to Christ. So what an opportunity to pray and and be encouraged. In light of that, we we don't give roses out to our men or anything um, special like we want to honor our mothers of this church. But what we are going to do is bring the word to bear upon our hearts and how precious God's word is to us. Many um, throughout the generations have not had the Word of God. Sometimes it's been bound up in a foreign language, uh, sometimes overseas. God has always seen fit to bring the gospel to bear, to save the elect. But what a precious opportunity we have to take our hearts to the Word. Let's begin by reading verse 49. We'll pray and begin. Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's pray. Father, how precious your word is to us. You have laid out your story. And it culminates in the glory of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And you have thread from Genesis to Revelation the theme of Christ. That we look to Him as sinners. We look to Christ who is righteous and perfect. We look to His perfect obedience and we rest in Him. And we look to His work on the cross where He satisfied your wrath for us because you are a just God that cannot compromise your character. And you have given a substitute sacrifice on our behalf. And you've raised Christ so that we might be raised in Him. And you've exalted Him so that we may be exalted in Him. And as Ephesians says, that our position is with Christ in the heavenlies. Well, this is your story. 
the world indeed promotes its story. It promotes its promises. Day after day, we are hit again and again with the stories of the flesh, with the stories of self, and we're invited to place ourselves into the storyline of the world. But you have given us your word and you have visited your people from generation to generation and you have invited us to look to your word, to look to your work. And we'd ask that you would do this once again. Guard our hearts, keep our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. I've entitled this Promises in Affliction. You see the key verse in verse 50. You see it pulled out in verse 51. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. And then verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me. So we see this affliction and persecution and hardship and suffering is often the theme of the Psalms. For indeed, the Holy Spirit has taken these spiritual journals of believing lives, sanctified them, set them apart, and scripturated them so that we would know how to think in light of affliction, to turn our eyes to His Word, to the God of the Word. There's a creature that God has created that always brings such fascination to to me. It's a particular spider, a water spider. And while it uh, breathes... It has a, what's called a book lun. The lun has thin sheets of tissue that look like the pages of a book. And like mammals, spiders require oxygen to live. But this water spider lives most of its life in the murk and the mire underneath the water, the slum. It eats, molts, mates, and raises its family under water while it is necessary for it yet to breathe. What this spider does is it makes a silk web and fills it with air bubbles, kind of like a balloon. The air bubbles eventually push all of the water out of the web so that it can live in an airtight nest under the water. And when it returns to the surface, the spider grabs another air bubble to replenish the air supply in its nest. And so here it is amidst the sludge and the ooze at the bottom of the pool and remains there untouched by the environment breathing in the supply of the air until the air is exhausted, it rises back to the surface, replenishes and comes down to survive on the air again. In Psalm 119, the psalmist does not promise that God will take away affliction. He promises to provide comfort in affliction. And what an example, an illustration, going up to the surface to be kindled and renewed through the Word of God as we're reminded of our position in Jesus Christ. And it guards and keeps our hearts as we minister and serve in the midst of affliction. God has amazing purposes for affliction and suffering. If I could give you a, a little bit of a preview of the Old Testament and the New Testament as it deals with suffering, we find that suffering demonstrates God's power. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, through 10, remember the thorn in the flesh. He has this apparent weakness and he asks that God would remove it. And the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you in the midst of this weakness. So Paul must learn that God's power will be demonstrated in a powerful, glorious way in the midst of the suffering. It increases personal contentment. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 recognizes that as he's drawing from the grace of God, 
through the power that God supplies in the affliction, that he finds great contentment and satisfaction in the midst of the affliction. It guards against sin and pride. In the same text, God gives Paul suffering because of the danger of pride. Keeps him weak. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, we see that God gives comfort in the midst of suffering. A comfort that we would bypass, not cry out for, not seek for. But we do indeed as believers experience the joy of His comfort in the midst of the affliction. So that we too can comfort others. We could go on. But you see, the world would look at your life and my life. And if there was no affliction, say, ah, you're faithful to your family. You're, you're faithful in life to your job. You love God because you're clinging to this. And the world will excuse the blessings that God indeed gives, the spiritual blessings in our life, because of the apparent prosperity on the outside. And so God brings in an affliction or suffering in order to make us weak, to crush our pride, so that we may know His comfort and His grace and the power of His Word and the glory of Jesus Christ, so that the world will look at our lives and say, this is a mystery. (laughs) What is this? It's the heavenly life lived on earth in the midst of affliction. Indeed, suffering not only highlights the glory of God's grace to the world, but also to our own hearts. I appreciate Octavius Winslow. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He writes this in his Precious Things of God. He says this, The Lord tries our faith to test its genuineness, to promote its purity, to invigorate its power, thus to bring us into a more intimate acquaintance with Himself. How seldom would the Lord see our uplifted face or our outstretched hands or hear the plaint accents of our voice did He permit this grace to lie sluggish and stagnant in the soul. But it is living water which Christ has deposited within the regenerate and trial is needed to keep it pure, sparkling, and ascending. And then He says this, You will know more of Jesus in one sanctified trial than in waiting through a library of volumes or in listening to a lifetime of sermons. Did you catch that? You will know more of Jesus in one sanctified trial than in waiting through a library of volumes or in listening to a lifetime of sermons. And isn't that true? We hear the precious truth of God's Word, but when does it sink in? When that trial and hardship comes whacking at our life. And we reach down the roots of our life deep into the Word of God to grab His precious promises and rest in His grace. It becomes meaningful and real and deep and powerful in our lives. It changes our hearts. We see that in our children's lives, do we not? Or in the little people around us as we instruct them, teach them. And then finally, when there's a, a difficulty and they realize how precious that instruction was to this. So we, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, need trials. We need weakness. So we would grasp on deep to the soil of His Word and His promises. So in light of that, the psalmist, ultimately the Holy Spirit through the psalmist, is going to give us seven blessings that God imparts through His Word to sustain us in affliction and ultimately to rivet our attention upon, yes, upon Christ. He is the theme of Scripture. 
So seven blessings God imparts through his word to sustain us in the midst of affliction, pointing us to Christ. And the first one is this. It is hope. It is hope. Look at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. Parallelism is very important, so I would invite you to notice a couple parallel statements. Parallelism in the Psalms or in Hebrew poetry help us to understand the meaning of the text, amplifies it a little more, gives it more richness. Notice the word and the promise in verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. Look at 50. This is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. So the word of God and the promise paralleled. What is so powerful about God's Word is it lays before us promises. Notice also the parallel of hope, verse 49, and life, verse 50. So that this hope is wedded with life. And of course, we're going to run to Christ here in a little bit as we look at the fullness of hope and life in Jesus. But again, notice this hope as it's developed. Remember your word to your servant. So God gives his word to his servant. He gives it as a promise that gives life. Notice that the servant receives the word, receives the promise. It has come to the servant. So there is a personal relationship that is going on between the word of God and the man and the woman of God. God comes to us through His Word, in His promises. Oftentimes, we jump on the boat of the world. It makes its promises. It'll say, here's your problem. But this is the Savior, or the functional Savior that can solve that. Here is your promise. Cast your hope upon it. And God comes to us through His Word, with His promises, and says, they're backed up by my character. Rest upon me. And so His promises produce faith. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. So as the Word comes to our hearts and provides the promises that are backed up by His enduring character, the promise of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the promise of His obedient life that He can secure me in His righteousness, the promise of His resurrection, the promise of His exaltation, we rest in Him. Faith grows and rests in Him. And he gets all of the glory. Notice the connection to the word and hope. Again, 49, the word comes so intimately to the servant so that we relate to God, have a relationship with him. And he says, in which or upon which or upon this basis, you've made me hope. So we see the connection of the word of God. It is the basis for this hope. Again, I would remind us how easy it is to not see the personal relationship that the people of God have with God through His Word. We're often running around looking for some experience outside of the Word of God or a voice of God or if He would move in this circumstance, this must be God's will. Rather than running to His Word and going, Lord, talk to me through your word. How does he do that? The word is enduring. It's faithful. It's true. And the spirit of God takes the word of God and impresses us with the glory of Jesus Christ, provides the promises, and we rest in him and we hope in him. 
So his precious word comes to us and produces hope. What is this hope? Hope, you can actually be translated to wait. In Hebrew narrative, if you ran through the Old Testament, you would see the same word often translated to wait. It is a confident expectation. It's an enduring patience. It is a, a resting, a depending This is hope. But notice that the Word of God, in verse 49, has made me hope. We love to say it's causative. That it is the power of the Word of God, the power of His promises that produces hope. It draws hope in Him. So you say, Lord, I'm I'm despondent, I'm weak in the midst of this affliction. I need hope. Where do I turn? The Word. I turn to the Word of God lays out the promises of God, producing faith so that I may have a living hope and a rest and a waiting in Him. And I'd like to run us to the cross. Luke 24, Jesus said that the law and the prophets and the Psalms are to be fulfilled in Him. Luke 24, 44 through 47. We find our hope in Jesus Christ. Before we look at a couple passages that augment hope, look over to verse 57 of the same passage. Psalm 119, verse 57. And I want you to see that in these promises that the the psalmist understands that the ultimate promise is God Himself. And this is a grace gift of God through the Word of God. And then we'll run to Christ because this is how we get God is in Christ. So yes, we'll spend a little more time on hope and life and we'll have little mini sermons. We'll look at 1 Peter and then we'll run through and see all these other blessings that really work out of hope and life. Look at verse 57. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance. This is to get God. I promise to keep your words. See the connection between the word of God and the God of the word. I entreat your favor with all my heart. That is translated face. Come before your face, O God. Your presence. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Grace. What does grace give? God. And so the psalmist can say, in your word are these promises, and the ultimate promise is, Lord, you're my inheritance. You are my portion. You are my reward. You're my treasure. And that's the ultimate promise. Indeed, there are blessings that flow out of getting God, life, joy, peace, all the blessings that He provides and depending and resting upon Him, breathing the air, enjoying the food. But getting God, the infinite, glorious, eternal God. Romans 8.24 says this, For in hope we have been saved. In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? What is hope? What is hope? Is it a wing and a prayer? Hope is the resting of faith on the present promise of a future blessing. The resting of faith on the present promise of a future blessing. Hope draws confidence, that's faith, from God's promise of future blessing in order to live today. Hope is intimately connected with faith. 
And it all comes on the promise of God's Word. Because the promise rests in His character, His work, and calls us to step outside of depending on ourselves, to cast ourselves upon Him. But it is ever before us. Because we have not yet seen it in its full reality here. We wait for glorification there. But yet by His promise, we believe that through faith, we are credited with Christ's righteousness, His perfect life. And His death, His work on the cross has satisfied God's wrath for us so that it is finished. I do not need to depend upon my own human merit to earn God's favor or God's graciousness. It all rests in Jesus Christ. He's been raised so my life is in Him. He's been exalted so my life is in Him. That's the promise. And believer, you and I today, as as the world and the flesh wages war, offering promises, offering hope, we turn and look at the promise of God in Christ Jesus. Say, how does that sustain us and bring life as the psalmist says. Look at First Peter, if you would. Remember again, Luke 24, 44-47 says the Psalms are fulfilled even in Jesus Christ. This is how we get God. Look at First Peter chapter 1. And here's our mini-sermon that we may run headlong to Jesus Christ, be pointed to Him. And we'll bring out, draw out some of these characteristics of hope. We won't be able to read the entire chapter, but we'll draw out this context of hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. This is a living hope. It's not the weaning of the prayer. I hope it is living because Christ is living. Notice verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now here's the gospel. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the promise. You have a living hope? The promise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has proclaimed the gospel to our hearts. Is the work of Jesus Christ that we have a living hope. Because of that, he says in verse 4, there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The world will make its promises. Secure your finances here. Secure your life here. And Scripture says, ah, no, the promise is in Christ. And he's certified it. He signed the check by his resurrection. Take it to the bank and rest on his promises. The funds are there. Notice the introduction. This is a living hope, but it's also a faith-filled hope. We see this in verse 5. It's a faith-filled hope who by God's power are being guarded through faith. You see the connection between living hope and faith? For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verses 6-7, through he'll tell us that these trials and afflictions are to test the faith. That is, it tests to see if I'm resting in His promises. If I value the gospel. If I value the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do I love His promises? It's a living hope. It's a faith-filled hope. It is a love-filled hope. Verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. There's the treasuring. The treasuring of God. The treasuring of Christ in His promises. And though you do not see Him, now you believe in Him. It is a living hope, a faith-filled hope, a love-filled hope. It is a joyful hope. He says again in verse 8, And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it is a glorious hope. 
a glorious hope. Notice again, he's not done with hope. In verses 10 through 12, he's going to remind us of the gospel. He's going to remind us that believers of old in the Old Testament were looking at the promises of God in Scripture, looking to the time of Christ's coming when he would come as the suffering servant. And so in verse 11, he underlines the obedience, the obedient life of Christ in his sufferings. Again, reminding us of the gospel to anchor our hope. And then in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you could say this is a grace-full hope. Not as grace-full walking, but grace-filled, grace-full hope. It rests upon His grace. So see, as He's continually bringing us back to hope, so He, he talks about the living hope, gives us the gospel and the resurrection, lays out the effects of this hope and this faith-filled hope, a loving hope, a joyful hope, a glorious hope, a grace-filled hope, reminds us again of the gospel, of the sufferings of Jesus Christ and His obedient life. And then He talks about hope again. And it's this hope that causes us to be conformed to His character. Look at verse 18. He's going to go back to the gospel again knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Those are the promises of the world. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So now he's underlined the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. His resurrection, His life sufferings, His redemption. Look at verse 21 who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead, gave Him glory. That's His exaltation. So that your faith and hope are in God. You see the promise again? The promise of redemption. Raised Him up to glory. There's where my faith and hope is. I need the gospel, Peter is saying. We need the gospel to rivet our faith and hope on the promises of God in Jesus Christ. It should be then no surprise in verse 23 that He brings us to bear on new birth, this life in the Word of God. Look at 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And in 25, He says, The Word of the Lord remains forever, and this Word is the good news, the euangelion, the gospel that was preached to you. See, life and hope connected. It is the gospel that comes on the wings of the Word of God, breaks through our calloused hearts, shines the light of the glory of Christ that we see His promises and our hearts, the eyes of our hearts are riveted to look to Christ and to see who we are in Christ. He is my life. He died on my behalf. He rose again, securing new life, exalted, and there I stand. And it's the Word of God, the Gospel, that opens our eyes and grants new life so that we hope in Him. Is it any wonder then, going back to Psalm 119, that the psalmist can say, Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life or revives me. The promise gives me life. It makes me hope. It's causative. It makes me hope. It gives me life. 
And what is his ultimate promise? What does it resonate? But God is my portion. I get God in the gospel. In Christ, I get God. These are the promises, brothers and sisters, that no message of the world can ever compete with. Because this world is fading and dying, but His promises endure forever because it's a living hope in Christ. It is a person. Indeed, this is true for an unbeliever who's been turning to the promises of the world. The Word comes and the ministry of the Gospel grants life. But this Word also describes reviving. And it's the psalmist who is a believer who is being granted renewal, life, kindling, revival, if you will. Some translations translate this text. So it's in the promises not only that we are saved and granted eternal life in Christ, but also that we grow in that life and our hearts are renewed in affliction. In affliction. Lord, I'm in affliction. My heart would ask that you would remove it but I understand by Your grace that You would put Your glory on display to me and to those around me that they would see the Christ is precious. So Lord, rather than remove the affliction, if that would be Your will, do so. But Lord, bring the necessary promises through Your Word to revitalize and renew our hearts that we may love Christ and be kindled in Him to put Him on display for He is our life. He is our life. So it brings revival, brings hope, it brings revival. We'll move on to the third. It brings steadfastness. Steadfastness. Steadfastness of heart, verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. He describes this affliction. It's not just hardship of life and the turmoils that come with living the Christian life, but the persecution that comes with that. Insolent can literally be translated to talk big, to boast. But in this, the, the, the description here in the Hebrew text is actually a little more powerful. It has the idea of scorn, to mock, or to deride. And he says to utterly, exceedingly, this derision is intensified. Oh, you see the mocking that goes on in the world, one person trying to outdo another and to proclaim superiority of another by putting another down and raising himself up. We see that. But this is an utter derision. It is intensified. There's an offense at the Christian life, offense at the confidence in the promises of God, an offense at the law of God, that as we live our life and proclaim a great Savior, it contests all the, the vanities of the world. As Program's Progress noted, the, the, the um, vanity fairs, they walked through and made all their, their promises and all these provisions of the world and were offended that there was only one Savior. And if you remember, faithful in that analogy given to us by John Bunyan, died, was martyred. There's a hatred. A hatred for the law. Look at 51. But I do not turn away from your law. So the word of God brings the justice and righteousness of God to bear upon the heart. And it offends people. 
It offends because it exposes unrighteousness and injustice and sin. But the believer, instead of being offended, wants to hold to the law, wants to hold to the word that proclaims the justice of God. And so he says, I do not turn away from your law. That's what the word of God does when it makes promises. We love his righteousness. We love his justice. As Luther started out in his his journey as a monk, he hated God. He hated the law because he knew he could not achieve the righteous standard of God. Until he recognized in Romans 1.17 that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. And so this righteousness is received passively. It is not something I do. It is something I receive through faith. And he recognized that Christ is his righteousness. And he loved the law. He loved the word of God. He loved the righteousness of God. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled it for him. The psalmist understands that there's a danger of a turning away from the law. He understands the nature of the heart. It is the central control system of the life. It is a treasure chest. Jesus said in Matthew 12, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's praying that the promises of God would so invade his heart that it would not turn aside or turn away or be inclined or steered away from the treasure of God's righteousness in his word. Grab my heart. Don't turn it away, but it's in your promises, in the affliction that I love, your righteousness, your character. I'm going to look at a couple of things that the heart treasures in this text. We don't have to go very far. Look at verse 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. The name throughout the Old and New Testament describes the character of God, His character and work, who He is. And so He says in your law, I love your name, who you are. I get God. So the the Lord grabs onto our hearts by bringing the word to bear upon our hearts to show us the supremacy of God in light of all the competing idols of the world and of the flesh. It shows us that God is supreme so that our hearts are steered, turned to love His word. We love His righteousness. Verse 62, At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. You see how the heart has been affected by the delight in righteousness? He says, I praise you. God's beauty in verse 69. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. There's the whole heart. It's the central control system of life. The word captures the heart with the promises of God. Verse 70. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. He sees the beauty of of the law. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So in the midst of affliction and persecution, he sees the world as it really is and learns to delight in the God of the word. And so his heart remains steadfast. So the word of God produces hope, produces life, and produces steadfast of heart, steadfastness of heart, and therefore brings comfort. Look with me at verse 52. When I think or consider or meditate of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Take it here, the plural of rules or judgments is that he's going line by line through the word of God as it communicates his will, his authority. And he says, I meditate on it. But notice the description and character of his rules from of old. 
These are ancient paths, as Jeremiah calls them. They are not flitting with the theories. New theories replace theories, replace theories. They are true and steadfast because they're anchored to God's eternal character. Doesn't that not bring comfort? Is it not disturbing when we're told that here's the paradigm for investments, here's the paradigm for how the economy works, and we're taught that in school? Or here's how the paradigm for raising children, and then it's replaced by another theory and another theory. The people are unstable, shaken up. But the Word of God is enduring. It is the same word that visited generation from generation from generation of old because it is the same enduring word of God reflecting the character of God. And so he finds comfort. You remember as a kid or if you've had children recently waking up in the dark, coming out of a dream, doors shut, no lights on, bewildered, shocked, running around, grabbing everything possible, trying to find the door alarmed, help, I'm lost in my room. And we've all been through that, I think, in some love of our lives. If not, as we get older and go through some physical suffering on certain medications, become a little delusional, I suppose. But here, the Word of God is enduring and sure, and it's from of old. It's like being lost but knowing that the 80 runs east and west. If I just keep going north, I'll run into it. Because I know it's there. And the word of God is enduring and it brings great comfort. There's a, a fifth blessing. Holy anger. Holy anger. Verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And the description here is of those who abandon the word of God. They are forsakers. That's the character. That's First John tells us sin is lawlessness. And so there is a, a burning indignation. It takes hold of the believer. I take it that the psalmist is experiencing holy anger, passionate love. It's not out of personal spite, but a reflection of a passionate love for the law of God. I love the law of God. It is righteous. Yes, it condemns me, but it points me to Christ to fulfill the law. And I love it. I love Christ. I love His work. And when you compromise the law, you devalue Jesus Christ. When you compromise His righteousness, you devalue Christ. When you say, I, I, I'm good and I, I haven't, I'm not a sinner, I haven't committed trespass, I haven't broken His law, you devalue the righteousness of Christ. I have a holy passion, an indignation that turns our hearts from the horror of sin to love His promises. So the Lord uses all of this in the midst of our affliction. He shows us the character of forsaking the Word of God, despising Christ. And when the heart may be turned just a little to value the world's promises, the Word catches our hearts with a fuel and flame for the glory of Christ that then guards and keeps us to love His Word, to love His promises. There's a sixth blessing. Praise Praise. Well, it's holy indignation, of course. It's going to erupt in this praise for God and His Word. Praises should be passionate. Verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs. He's writing songs from the Word of God in the house of my sojourning. I'm a wanderer in my affliction, no place to rest, going through persecution, suffering. I'm like Abraham, a wanderer. I'm like the Hebrews 11 saints that are wandering, going through hardship and suffering, but it is the Word of God 
that captures my praise. So it brings praise. Lastly, the seventh blessing is God's name. God's name, verse 55 and 56, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. Again, reflecting his character, who he is. And keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The psalmist describes, Psalm 119, the relationship between the Word of God and God's character. In Psalm 119, verse 2, we read this, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Keeping His Word, loving God with all the heart. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So lest we think that somehow we need this experience outside of the word of God, the psalmist says, no, I am visited with God's presence through his word. Love him, delight in him. Want to understand God's mind? We have his word. What is God's truth? We hear his voice through the gospel in his word. Want to know God's path? It's in His Word. Want to know God's insights on life and His purpose and plans? It's in His Word. Want to be comforted? It's in His Word. Want to be saved? It's in His Word. Want to be sanctified? It's His Word. You want to know what your inheritance is? It's in His Word. We come to His Word. We scrounged some money to buy a trampoline. I should say my kids did. That was an effort, motivation they had to buy a trampoline. Used one on Craigslist and kind of pieced it together. So scraped their money and did that. And uh, after a couple bounces, uh, springs and loops gave way. And one shot up to the neighbor's house and went right into the gutter. <laughs> and then the others started, ching, 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 little by little. What are we going to do? Tried a sewing machine. Didn't quite work. Broke the needle. So finally, my kids dragged into the house. And little by little, a little bit of thread, a little bit of thread, Put it back out there, the loops into the springs. Bounce, spring. Oh, got to get that one. Four little turns of the thread. And I was walking out there yesterday as they were bouncing and thought, here's these huge springs that we literally had to go, you know, pull and grab on and latch it on there. And each one from the side and our hands are all torn and <laughs> rusty. And But here are these little threads are holding this thing in place, these springs that were pulling with all of our might. The Spirit of God and the Word of God takes trials and the hardships of our life and little by little impresses us with the glory of Jesus Christ. The world misses it. It sees these springs popping every once in a while, replaced, growing in Christ, loving Christ. We need the Word. It's the threat of our life. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for your word. We thank you for its preciousness. We thank you for the promises in your word that point us to Jesus Christ. We'd ask that you continue to thread away at our hearts in the midst of affliction. And indeed, while the world bypasses those little threads, we see them as very precious to our hearts. And we're reminded of affliction after affliction that you have taken us through in our sojournings and our wanderings and reminded us of the glory of Jesus Christ. So we'd ask that you continue until the day of glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.